Hi, I'm Ali Maldro, the host of A Public Affair on Tuesdays. You can listen to this show any day of the week, any hour of the day on the WORT smartphone app or on wortfm.org. If you love what you hear, click that donate button and support community media. Your donation makes a huge difference. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from underground. We bring the truth to places truth is never heard before. We bring the sound communication of our tribal war. Dark vision fly. Good afternoon. You're listening to WORT 89.9 FM. I'm your host, Ali Maldro. This is a public affair. Today we are talking to the author of the book that Miss Magazine dubbed one of the most anticipated feminist books of 2023. It's a fantastic book, but before we get started, I wanted to remind everyone that today is the first day of the Summer Pledge Drive. Please give us a call at 608-256-2001 and then, you know, hit one to kick off the giving to a public affair. Our guest today is an independent scholar and women's health advocate. She's the author of the forthcoming book, Safe in a Midwife's Hands, Birthing Traditions from Africa to the American South. Linda Janet Holmes, thank you for joining us today on A Public Affair. We also have Shelly Pittman in the studio with us who will be pledge wrapping. If you want to call and say, you know, congratulations to Shelly or <laughs> congratulations to like basically anyone on our team except for me. <laughs> I am the only person who has not recently gotten married. Um <laughs> Our, our engineer, Ashley, also got married this past weekend. Shali got married this weekend. Jade got married like a, a few months ago. I'm like, Jade, if you want to jump in the chat and tell us how long. If you want to congratulate these folks on their nuptials um, and give, we would love to hear from you. We'd love to celebrate love with you. Um, and we'd love to talk about midwifery with you. Linda, I want to get us started and jump into this conversation. How did you get your start in midwifery? What was kind of your initial access point to this conversation? That's a great question because it's a very long story. It actually goes back to my own childhood experience. Um, my daughter is now in her mid-40s. So more than four decades ago, I gave birth in a tertiary care center uh, in Patterson, New Jersey, which is where I was living at the time. And I had taken, um, at that point, what was considered groundbreaking uh, childbirth education classes. Um, I was a single mom, but um, her dad and I took classes in New York with Elizabeth Bing, who um, was kind of in the forefront of in empowering moms and their partners to be um, decision makers in the midst of the birth experience. And so, um, even though at the time I was not insured, right, I was an indigent, quote unquote, mom, um, but I had my list of what I would just call demands, right? <laughs> Things that I wanted to be a part of my birth experience. Good for you. <laughs> and um, so, the first thing that happened was when I got to the hospital, I mean, the, one of the things was, you know, don't go to the hospital too early. Make sure that you're fully, you know, in labor and, you know, ready to, to go because you don't want to be in the hands of the tertiary care system, you know, um, doing their things with drugs, et cetera, et cetera, watching the clock. But the first thing that happened, you know, I resisted being, um, you know, taking the, the, the medication to increase your, your labor and, you know, to do the breathing um, to have the dad with me throughout, um, well, so was his name. And the nurses, I became a spectacle. So rather than the nurses coming in to, like, ask questions or bring water or, or rub my back or my hands or hold my hand as doulas and midwives do now, they were, like, calling in their partners and saying, this is unbelievable. She doesn't want drugs. <laughs> so that was the beginning of my hospital experience. And then... You know, they, oh, they, oh, uh, uh, Bing had this idea about watch out for the three o'clock, um, doctors gotta go because they have a golf game, right? So, sure enough, <laughs> and that was, you know, in quotes, but sure enough, I guess it was like mid afternoon and the doctor said, you know what? You know, this has gone on long enough. It's time. 
um, you know, it's time to, you know, go into the delivery room space and do whatever's needed to get this baby out. But, and no indication that the baby was at risk or any of that. So, or that I was at risk. So anyway, I, you know, we, that, the, that debate went on for a while. And then finally I, I, um, decided that maybe it was in my best interest, the baby's best interest to move forward. So I said to him, the only way that I'm going to have allow myself to go into the delivery room, this is in 1976, and allow myself to go into the delivery room for um, inducing uh, the labor is if my partner, my daughter's dad, can be with me, right? And, and they just said, that's never happened before. We're not going to allow that. And I won that particular round <laughs> because I kept saying, well, I'm not, I'm just, you know, I'm just going to stay in labor, I guess, because, you know, and you can't go to your golf game, I guess. And, you know, we'll just be here. But anyway, so long story short, um, I was also the first person. It was a, a hospital in um, Patterson, New Jersey. I was also the first person, according to the nurses, to have my wishes for rooming in accommodated mm. so that I could breastfeed um, on demand. And um, so once all of that, you know, in the rearview mirror, you know, looking back at it, but once, you know, I had a healthy baby, all went well, but that was, that's what put the real fire in me. Like there's something wrong with this whole system, right? Mm. <laughs> And that was kind of, that's the beginning of this book. And I tell some of that story in the book, um, Sacred of Midwives Hand, that um, I went on to get a master's degree in public administration um, shortly after that. But I focused on, you know, what was the law in New Jersey around midwives and their special taxes? How many women in New Jersey had access to midwives? Um, and then I did a survey. I wanted to do a survey. This is the end of answering your question. I wanted to do a survey at the hospital closest to me in North New Jersey, a medical school, um, with the hospital affiliated with it. And I had these questions that I wanted to ask mothers who didn't have any of the choices that I was able to kind of fight for, like rooming in, um, uh, having the, their partner with them at the time in, in giving birth and so forth. And the doctor said to me, you don't understand. He said, these are poor women. Many of them are not married. Um, they don't, they're not interested in breastfeeding. They're not interested in living in. They're not interested in having a midwife. And that was the second, <laughs> the second fire for, so that fire has kept me going for 40 years. Um, not full time, but, you know, continuing to focus on this issue. I, I think that that's kind of an amazing, you know, tribute to how life changing an experience it is to give birth and how it is in a lot of ways an origin story um, for for, you know, more than just the person who is being born. If you are out there listening to this conversation and you have questions about midwif midwifery, you have questions about birth. Uh, we want to hear from you. The number is 608-256-2001. Also, if you want to call and congratulate our crew on being recently married, Jade has been married at seven months as of yesterday, please give us a call. Or if you want to call and make sure that WORT is around for the long haul, we would love to hear from you. We've been, we've been around for decades and we want to be around for many, many more. Give us a call today at 256-2001. Area code is important. So 608-256-2001. Shelly, why is it important to you that people support WORT? Hey, Ali. Well, thanks first for the, thank you for the plug and thank you for doing this show as always. And um, thanks for joining me here in the studio, inviting me to be here. Um, well, there are so many reasons to support WORT. Um, the first I'll start with is the fact that we're 75% listener supported. We run because you support us. So 608-256-2001, that's the number to call to join the many folks in our listening community who not only listen 
but give to this show and many others. You can also donate online at wortfm.org. There's a donate button. And uh, you can also find online our, our list of thank you gifts. Um, one thank you gift I just want to highlight for you, uh, Ali, is that we have a new bucket hat for the summer season. It's our summer plunge drive. And so we have a bucket hat available uh, of course, with WORT on it at the uh, level of $89.90. Uh, $89. You see what we did there? But yeah, <laughs> I like that a lot. Also, I learned yesterday from a very savvy 60 year old that bucket hats are in. They're in. They're very fashionable Fantastic. right now. Our host this morning, Brian, was wearing a bucket hat and it almost looked like the same color as this one. So I it's was a like, really right. cute hat. And all you have to do is give 89.9. Yeah, no. or more. We we have these as thank you gifts, as thank you for your support. But we know that the reason that you give is to support Elise Conversations and all of our other fantastic hosts of this show and others. Ali, I would give because I appreciate your show in particular. I love the feminist um, and intersectional perspectives you bring. Um, and you talk about things that I really do grapple with in my own life. And provide insight that whenever I talk with you, I feel like I'm talking with a, a poet. And I mean that in a very good way, where when you talk with a poet, uh, these walls that you had built in your head sort of come down. Oh, and wow. so I really appreciate that about your show and the guests that you bring on, including Ms. Holmes, who's our guest today. Shelly's going to make me cry on the air. <laughs> I'm really, I encourage you all to give so that Shelly doesn't have to say so many nice things over and over. Um, otherwise, not. I'll just be in tears. We're also, we're talking about midwifery and we're talking about birth yeah. today. Yeah. They're super, you know, close to my heart. And I was thinking about, like, what are the access points to this conversation? Who mm. can call in and join this conversation? I thought, oh, no, what if men feel left out? I'm and not then so I thought, worried about that. Yeah. Um, but then I'm like, well, you all are born. Like, you know, you didn't you didn't get here any other way than than, you know, through through a mom for the most part. Um, and so I'm curious, like, you know, what what men are thinking about midwifery or what men are thinking about, you know autonomy and birth well if you're if you're married to a woman identifying person you may have been having these conversations if you have sisters if you have a daughter um in addition to your mom uh how about just the the friends in your life who are pregnant or have grappled with this this is an issue for everyone well and or the trans masculine you. folks Absolutely. who are out there and yes. and may experience pregnancy themselves and like need to be included in this conversation and have their their own relationship to what dignity and birth looks like. Absolutely. This, I appreciate that you said dignity because that's exactly what this is. I just, um, I, I'm so appreciative that you're talking with Ms. Holmes today because there have been conversations locally about midwifery. Um, about two years ago now, a, a local hospital decided to end their midwifery program and that decision was reversed after community outcry, but it's a little bit of an insight into um, these aren't necessarily given services, right? We can't take that for granted. Um, no, nothing in the realm of birth <laughs> can be taken for granted. Nothing right? in the realm of pregnancy, right? You think mm. that you have these rights or you have these options or mm. you have, you know, these choices that are yours to make. Um, and it seems that they're kind of constantly at play. Um, in terms of what what your options are, what they'll look like from one day, one year, mm -hmm. one month to the next, yeah. um, which I think is is challenging if you're if you're trying to to navigate a birth that is that is dignified and autonomous and heaven forbid you you show up at your birth with a list of demands like our guest which i'm like <laughs> oh that's just it's just invigorating to hear somebody say like yeah i knew what i wanted and i wasn't um i wasn't gonna back down from from that while while in labor which is you know that's intense I want to, Linda, I want to jump back into conversation with you. What inspired you to write this book? This book has been highly anticipated. People are incredibly excited about, you know, what what this book, the commentary that you're bringing to the birthing experience, um, in part because this, this book has an international perspective um, and represents birth very differently than what we're used to in kind of mainstream media or, or more, uh, you know, more of the 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 generalized conversations we have around what, what birth can look like. Yeah, I, um, 
I just wanted to comment on something that was just said in the previous conversation about um, the conversation that we're having. It's not just, uh, for me, at the core of this conversation, it's not just about um, we're doing it in the context of birthing, but it has a lot to do with the healthcare system in general. Yes. And uh, feeling empowered when you are walking in, into or, or find yourself in the hospital space or in the doctor's office and feeling that your um, what you want in terms of treatment, what you want in terms of interventions, what makes sense for you, and being able to have those conversations and feeling empowered in those com- in conversations and feeling that um, that your that you have a right to have um, your um, needs met in the way your healthcare needs met in the way that you also can participate in the decision-making process on how that's done or how that's accomplished, right? Yeah. And I think in some ways the the, the birthing movement has um, uh, has had an impact not just on um, having that philosophy <laughs> about this is my body um, and that I don't have to have an MD degree to be able to um, have a right to you know, express myself about this. I, I just um, had breast cancer treatment not too long ago, and I spent a lot of time, you know, doing research on the, on the Internet so that when the doctor said, well, this is, you know, this is the only thing that we can do that makes sense to save your life, I can challenge that. <laughs> or I could say there are other ways of thinking. So I just, in terms of your audience listening today, we're focusing on birthing, but I think that the stories in my book um, the stories that that you know just being a part of a birth experience hopefully flows into how the whole healthcare system becomes more sensitive, more open to respecting the person who's actually receiving the care. Can we talk? Now, what a, was your question? Can we talk <laughs> a little bit about kind of how what it's looked like for you to support women in labor? You've supported all kinds of, of women. Um, what what has that been like with you? And have you seen different kinds of women be treated differently while giving birth, while, you know, experiencing pregnancy? Okay, so I worked with a nurse midwife program um, in New Jersey. I had a chance to observe a couple of births, but I have never, um, you know, I'm not a doula and I'm not a midwife. Right. Um, And so my and I was just remembering today that I had a chance when I was in El Paso, um, Texas, a long time ago to actually observe births there, a couple of births there. And we did set up Well, I one of my major accomplishments while I was at the working at the medical school in New Jersey after I, you know, gave birth and got a master's degree in public administration. Um, because I wanted to work within a midwife program, I, I was very fortunate. Um, and we were able to establish a, um, a birthing room in a, and it was literally that, a, a labor room converted to a birthing room, not like what we see now in terms of birth centers and birthing spaces. Um, and that was revolutionary at the time. And what we said was only midwives would be able to attend birth in that particular space. Um, we did things that made the room more home-like. Um, but the idea is, and I think still is to, to a certain extent, that unless, if you have a certain level of education, right, if you talk a certain way, if you, um, if you're married in the most, um, I don't know, like, like how my how my parents would think of marriage, right? <laughs> um, so if you're married if in, you're, in a more conventional way? You know, yes, right, exactly. Or and I wasn't married, right? And that was that was definitely an issue in this Catholic hospital that I was giving birth in. You know, that I was now um not not seen we want birth to be normal, but I but but I was not normal. <laughs> mm. Even before for them, right? That what I my choices that I were making did not fit into their concept of normal. Um, and so, and actually, what happened is that 
Lamaze and all of those ideas back in the 70s and in the 60s were really seen as something from white, middle-class, married women, mm. right? Um, married, yeah, women. So, so it has taken a while for, and, they, and the justification was, Oh, these, you know, the, the ones that the labels, right? You know, they're not married, they're poor, they're on drugs, they're alcoholics and all of that part. But also the assumption was that, um, that they were high risk. Mm. These women were high risk. And so therefore they needed, it was medically justified for them to be, for, for women to be heavily drugged, for women to be, uh, require, um, in quotation marks, unnecessary C-sections, you know, all of that kind of thing, because they're all being like, you know, lumped together into one category that was very, very, at best, um, stereotypic. Yeah. And so the, the difference between kind of what was medically necessary and also the, the social implications that then, you know, impacted the quality of care uh, people receive. You talked a little bit about, you know, on unwed unwed women um you know folks who may may be you know living in poverty can you talk a little bit about you know how how race impacts um maternal care or or the care that people receive during birth yeah i think what has me um i guess inspired to keep going actually with this project you know there were interruptions is that um well when i was at the office of minority multicultural health the issue of unequal treatment which kind of came into the forefront during the on the federal level during the clinton years right um but even before that i learned i'm in hampton virginia now which is close to hampton university an historically black college but you know booker t washington back in the uh, you know, the turn of the century was talking about um, a need for Negro Health Week because there was a clear understanding that, um, you know, access to care for black women and black families was not the same as it was for, you know, just a class and economics, of course, has its play here too, as well, in the white community. Um, for indigenous, the indigenous community, having access to, um, um, the, I guess what is considered to be the um, the medical uh, practices at the time that were considered to be optimal. Some of those mm. are now being questioned. But clearly having access um, is an issue. But what is inspiring now is, is the black birthing justice movement, right? Mm. That there is now... It's it's revolutionary, in my opinion, that there is an understanding in the black community um, that, you know, black women are three times um, as likely to die in childbirth, right, as a white woman. Um, and that doesn't matter what your economic status is, that you're still at greater risk, as we learned from the Beyonce and the Serena uh, stories that got so much international attention. But that, so that's kind of the good news, the awareness um, that's happening, that in the past it was assumed that, uh, you know, if you became, if you had money, if you had education, you know, all those things, then you would have this positive birthing outcome. Um, but now we know that, that race um, is a marker for um, many problems that can lead to a, a, a troubling childbirth experience. Yeah, so black women are three times more likely than white women to die during childbirth. Black women, uh, black babies are three times more likely than white babies to die, um, you know, in in the first year of life. If you're just joining us, you're listening to A Public Affair on WORT 89.9 FM Madison. My name is Ali Maldro, and today we are talking with Linda Holmes. Linda is the author of the forthcoming book, Safe in a Midwife's Hands, Birthing Traditions from Africa to the American South. It is also Pledge Week, um, and we are hoping to, you know, we are hoping to keep the lights on here at WORT 89.9 
kind of kind of trying to stay in business and we need your support. We cannot do this show without you. We also can't do this show without our amazing team, our engineer, Ashley, our receptionist, Steve, who would love to hear from you, would love to answer your call. Our producer, Jade, and our news director, Shali, who's also on the air with me today. Shali, do you want to talk a little bit about you know, how much we're trying to raise today, what we're, what we're trying to use these resources for. Thanks for queuing me up, Aleem. Hey, we're fundraising, yes, to keep the lights on and to pay our energy bill and to keep the regular maintenance of WRT going. But we're also fundraising to do more, right? And I think that's the really key part, right? We count on you to keep us funded throughout the year. W-O-R-T is about three quarters funded by listeners. People like you, it's a hackneyed phrase, but people like you who are listening, who are part of our community, your friends, your neighbors, um, perhaps your mom is listening to to W-O-R-T and coming to W-O-R-T, being interviewed on W-O-R-T. And so, Aliyah, I mean, Yes, keeping the lights on, but also um, this. We have so many projects going on this this year. Uh, I think more than than in a long time. We have the new soundboard project. Um, we've bought the new soundboards. They're actually in that studio right over there, uh, being tested out. We got them earlier than anticipated, <laughs> but that's thanks to the I don't know two years of asking for your support for that project, and it's coming into fruition. It's going to mean that our um, on-air sound is a lot more flexible, sounds a lot better, just the pure audio quality. It means we can do a lot more in linking up the studios, and you're probably like, oh, I'm falling asleep, but trust me, it'll It'll sound so much better is the point. We have a project to improve this middle studio that we're in right now because we know it's a little shabby and we're trying to do better. Um, And with the eventual goal of, you know, video streaming these conversations, right? Um, What else are we doing? Well, I, you know, I won't say too much about it, but we've got a mural project, right? We also realized that like lovely as it is, community output and community project that it was, um, it's also a little shabby. Um, and so I, let, I don't mean to insult the artist at all. I, it, it's beautiful. No, but things but, get worn out after a while, yeah. right? And there's like, like basic facility stuff that we're doing. Like, I don't know if you've ever, ever heard of tuck pointing, but I sure have now this year. Uh, but we also, you know, are embarking on this long process to do a community kind of feedback um, about a, a possible new mural. And, you know, that will... We're barely in the beginning stages, so don't don't freak out. So but. now you know why you should give, right? There's a lot of work to do, and the people who work at WORT are some of the most dedicated journalists in Madison. They're constantly making sure that we know what's going on locally. Um, they're having, you know conversations that push the 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 bounds of what we know about ourselves and our and each other um and they're making space for us to to celebrate who we are as a community and become who we want to be as a community if you want to give the number is 608-256-2001 we would love to hear from you shelly there's a couple other ways people can give right yes and one way is to donate online at wortfm.org can you ring that bell for me Heck yes. We'd like to thank Benjamin from Madison. Benjamin um, gave to this very show and says the Tuesday APA crew is the best. They are. That's why people keep marrying them. (laughs) Hopefully not. Yeah. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Hopefully just once, I think, is what everybody's going for. But were it not to work out, I'm just saying, like, they could could get married again. We have options. Um, Yes, exactly. Benjamin's favorite shows are A Public Affair on Tuesday, uh, Tropical Rhythms, excellent choice there, and then all the news and public affairs shows. So thank you so much, Benjamin, for giving. Please be like Benjamin and give online at wortfm.org. And the last way I'll say that you can donate is you can be our, our consistent donor. You can give every month and that is super helpful for the projects I was just talking about. Those require budgeting and planning. I just made a new spreadsheet two weeks ago for 
one of our projects. And, you know, I know that all sounds really boring, but uh, what we know we have in the bank to set aside for a certain project is actually how projects get done. And when you become an Evergreen um, monthly supporter at any amount, I think it's $5 or up, that $5, knowing that we can count on that in December as well as this month, that is super helpful. And over the years, we've grown the number of monthly supporters, and that has helped us um, actually eliminate one-off pledge drives so that we can just continue to give you uh, high-quality programming uninterrupted by me and pledge drives um, and fundraising drives. But um, that that is super helpful. And, you know, it is quick and easy, right? It just comes out of your bank account. Um, it, you can set it low if you're like me, always worried about a bank account. You can set it low at $5, okay? Um, and hopefully um, hopefully that won't impact, but you can well, also give you, one time. <laughs> and you can think about it too as like, oh, would I? do I feel comfortable kind of casually buying a friend a cup of coffee? Yes. Well, then I feel comfortable casually like, keeping this radio station going and making sure that the people who work here have the support they need to be successful in delivering really important information and incredible music um, to our community. So give us a call at 608-256-2001. Linda, we have a caller on the line who has a question for you about birthing stools. And since, you know, your book spans from, you know, Africa to the American South, are birthing stools something that that you have have seen used uh, regularly? And Terry, I want to welcome you to the show so you can, you know, join us in this conversation and talk a little bit with Linda. Hey, uh, Ali, this is actually Jade. Terry is not on the line, but I'm going to tell you what his question was. He's a he's a wood, woodworker, so he had to go back to the wood shop. OK, um, but he said that he has made a lot of birthing stools uh, in Hawaii and over 350 babies have been born using his stools. He was shout out to the stools. Yeah. He was just sort of wondering, are birthing stools and other, um, you know, non hospital bed situations more becoming more popular in the U.S.? Yeah, let's let's talk about it with Linda. Linda, what's your familiarity with birthing stools? And Terry, thank you for calling us. Thanks for the work that you're doing. Yeah, that's a great question because it's a question that reminds us of the interconnections um, in terms of birthing practices among women since the beginning of time, right? And so... This whole idea I was talking about, you know, giving birth in the delivery room on the delivery room table is um, a relatively recent development, uh, maybe like the New York, maybe in the 18th, 19th, really into the 19th century before um, birth experiences were being, quote, managed by the doctor um, and giving birth flat on your back. Um, there have actually been some well-documented scientific studies that have been done that show that in terms of gravity and in terms of um, optimum birthing outcomes that actually lying flat on your back is probably um, the most anatomically optimal way. <laughs> yes. Most anatomically pro problematic way right, to give right. birth is the way that we <laughs> standardize giving birth in the United States. Exactly. Exactly. So many of the traditions that um, that I document in my book, Safe in a Midwife's Hands, are traditions that are, um, you know, reflect the wisdom of of women and, and midwives since the beginning of, of time. And mm. so um, birthing stools um, were, you know, very much um, uh, a part of, of, particularly in Ghana, um, I should say that I spent I was, it was amazing that I was able to collect the stories that I collected in the three weeks that I was there, right? Um, but birthing stools, yes. Um, and, you know, essentially, you know, the, the, once you're in the rural area and talking about, you know, living in a hut, um, you know, what we think of as the, the standard kind of um, bed, right? You know, it's usually a mat and so forth. So birthing stools are definitely in, and using, and, and not just the birthing stool, but what I found even more common in the women that I talked to. And also remember, Africa is, you know, in terms of geographic space, many different cultures, many different practices, many different ethnicities. I was in Ghana, 
I was in Kenya and I was in Ethiopia. Um, but when I was in Ghana, I was able to take several photographs of women demonstrating the optimal uh, birthing position, which was a stooping birthing position. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and the same, uh, you know, I also referred to the, um, in the book to the, uh, the Egyptian culture that you see, um, the, you know, the drawings in, in, in ancient, in ancient, ancient Egypt, where women, again, are in an upright position for birthing. So I think whether using a stool or whether being, um, uh, there's some, there's an image in the book where there's a woman, the midwife is standing behind the mother and, and, and lifting her up, um, uh, and, and supporting her in that stooping position. Um, but, you know, since the beginning of time, right, women have assumed the position of um, upright, sometimes using stools, sometimes uh, having support from the midwife or the mother. Um, Sometimes I think in South America, there's the tradition of using hanging ropes for support. But, But, you know, traditionally, historically, from the beginning of time, flat on your back was not how millions and trillions <laughs> of folks were born. Can I can I ask if if giving birth flat on your back isn't doesn't benefit the mother, doesn't benefit the baby, um, if you know, having your your feet in stirrups doesn't benefit the baby, doesn't benefit the mother, who do we do all that for? Well I think you I, obviously I think you told me you, you do doula work, so you know the answer, but I'll be happy. <laughs> you know. Well, you, can add to my, you can add to my response based on your experience. It obviously was part of the, the, the male doctor takeover <laughs> of the birth experience and wanting to have, the doctor, of course, did not want to have to stoop. The doctor did not want to have to, uh, uh, you know, show, have physical contact with the mother. So for having a mother, like having this bright light on the vagina, it also dehumanizes the birth experience, right? Because they're not looking at the woman. They're not thinking about the woman. They're now focused on the vagina, right? So that, you know, I, I saw open heart surgery once, and they cover the whole body, and it's just nothing but the heart. So the same thing is happening in the birth experience. They're, mm. you're, you're, you're no longer the mom, the woman, the, um, a, you know, a human person. You are, you are the... This, you are this part of the body where the baby's coming out, mm. um, and that's where the focus is. And then they can take the light, right, and and the that you see in the surgery room, and focus the you know the very bright light on on that part of the body, and it becomes um, a technical experience and in medical schools, it's a teaching experience, but it is a way not to see the mother. It's a way not to see the woman. It's a way not to see the whole person. And it really contributes to dehumanizing the um, the way that that birth is viewed um, by the by the by doctors. Which is not to say that that is true of all doctors or all birth experiences, but I think it is true to say that the idea of flattening your back, birthing table, was really for the convenience and for the teaching and for a way for them to kind of objectify and, and make it more um, just it, it kind of like tear the birthing away from the woman who's giving birth. Hmm. Thank you so much for speaking to that. And you know, I completely agree with you that I think there's so <laughs> much in birth that is about catering to the doctor, catering to the hospital, and not necessarily about what is in the best interest of the person who is giving birth, what is in be- the best interest of the the child being born. Um, and I think it's really important to name that and to talk about that because I think you go into a hospital and you think, oh, this is supposed to be there to support me. And we we forget that, uh, you know, hospitals are businesses. Um, and and that they they prioritize you know what what works well what works well for them and you know there there's there's a range but I think we have to you know look at some of how birth is being done uh, pretty critically and I think that's one of the things I really liked about your book is it really allows for people to think critically about. Uh, the mythology of birth about what you've been taught to assume around birth and what you've been told birth is supposed to look like and be like. Um, and you really, you really challenge that. 
Why was it important to you to talk about birthing traditions from Africa to the American South? Why was it important to you to include uh, the archetype of the granny midwife in this in this book? Mm-hmm. I, I just want to mention um, before I forget, because I will forget, but the the book is out. <laughs> the book <laughs> is out. To, the release date was originally June fifth. And for and we I don't I asked the publisher how did this happen because I didn't even know that the book was out on Mother's Day, <laughs> so the book has now been out for <laughs> the book has been out for several weeks actually. Oh, that makes um, so much sense that it would come out on yeah, Mother's yeah, Day. So, yeah, the book is accessible for anyone who's interested in reading. Um, Y'all, I highly recommend it. You you got to check this book out. Yes, yeah. Uh, why was I interested in going to Africa? First of all, um, you know I am of African descent, and um, I, you know, it wasn't my first time going to the continent, um, you know, the, the space that I consider my homeland, right, my ancestors. Um, I went um, shortly after I got out of, before I became a mom, I went to Kenya, and then uh, on, the, on the Congress of Racial Equality fight, flight, um, and li- people literally got off the plane and, and kissed the ground, right, right at the airport, you know, it was that kind of a homecoming sense. And then the second time that I was there, I was there with the Rockefeller Foundation, and it was called Women to Women, and we actually had a chance. I was representing the Black Women's Health Project, and it, and there were midwives in this in this team on this small team of maybe like seven or eight women, and we were meeting with traditional um, midwives who are most often referred to as traditional birth attendants to find out, you know, what their concerns were and to really listen to them. Because oftentimes when um, these foundations with, you know, coming in, you know, coming to the continent to save the, to save mothers and save babies have their approach to what needs to happen, but don't take the time to listen to um, the stories that I have in my book <laughs> of women who have been succeeding and having healthy um, birthing outcomes and are continuing their practices that really go back to the beginning of time, passed on to them by their grandmothers and their great-grandmothers. I was in Alabama in um, 1981 because I had a grant from the um, Humanities Foundation interviewing black women who were a last generation of midwives who were being issued lay midwife permits in Alabama which allowed them to practice legally. Um, and as a result of hospitals opening up, being forced to open up <laughs> as a result of the civil rights movement to black women in terms of not just birthing care, but medical care. Yeah. Um, and as a result of vicious campaigns to get rid of granny midwives using all kinds of stereotypes, I was able to collect stories from this, quote, last generation of, of midwives. And their stories included traditions and rituals that basically get laughed at and mocked at, mocked um, by mainstream medicine as being superstitious, backwards, and ignorant. And over time, from my reading, I began to understand that many of the rituals and traditions that they were talking about that were being labeled superstition were actually um, grounded and continued by their ancestors and were very, very similar to some of the traditions that I had read about um, on the continent. And that's why I decided to um, to go to Africa um, most recently. Um, that, was, that, was the, that was the spark, those conversations with the midwives in Alabama. Linda, I want to ask you to read a little bit of your book. But before I do, I want to remind folks that we have a little more than 10 minutes left and we really want to hear from you. The number is 608-256-2001. You can get a really cute summer bucket hat. Um, But we are asking you to give today to help us stay in business here at WORT. So please give us a call. Shoot us a text. I mean, there's there's more than one way to do it, Shelley. How do you? How do you get? <laughs> I don't know if you could text us yet, but uh, you can certainly call us 608-256-2001. Uh, big 
thanks to Rory and Steve for answering phones in the the library. You can pledge online at wortfm.org. Use that if you want to pay via um, card, and you can see all of the pledge premiums available there as well. We also have PayPal as an option on the website. Those are kind of the main ways, 608-256-2001 or online at wortfm.org. Our goal this hour, which I should have said at the top of the show, is for five of Elise's listeners, five of you, to call in and donate or pledge online and donate. That means we need like four people in we the need, next eight we minutes. We need four so. more, and I'm refreshing this feed, but I think we need four. So we need you to call in. I learned what a birthing stool was, and I have been entranced by this conversation. So I'm going to let Ms. Holmes continue, but please do. If you're learning things from this conversation, which I hope you are, um, please support this conversation and conversations like these. Yeah. So Linda, I want to ask you to share with us. And I I also want to highlight a little bit of what you said about part of catering to the doctor is making it easy for the doctor to avoid physical contact with the patient who is giving birth. Your book is called Safe in a Midwife's Hands. And that really resonated with me because there is a a level of genuine affection and connection between midwives and and folks who are giving birth. Do you want to share a little bit of of your writing with our listeners and then we'll kind of jump back into the conversation in those last couple minutes? Okay. Um, I was trying to find something brief, so maybe I will read. Um, This doesn't capture, this is not speaking specifically to um, a specific traditional ritual, but I think it captures some of the feeling and the content uh, and, the, and the why of why I wrote the book. On the continent, midwives talked about traditions that were grounded in African religions, which included chants and invocations. Black midwives in Alabama shared their Christian practices, which included prayers, hums, and scripture, which surrounded the birth and resonated with the practices of some of the traditional midwives that I met on the continent. On the continent, being born in the house, that being wrapped in the strength of ancestral traditions. In Kenya, midwives look to the sky to determine an infant's name, using the amount of light or the sun or moon's position to make the determination. Many midwives also describe the birthing hunt, hut as a welcoming space, unlike a facility or hospital where mothers are routinely separated from loved ones and women may be unable to adhere to their religiously-based birthing traditions. In Alabama, a midwife told me that she sold her cow to have enough money to give birth in the hospital. Quote, I had as much pain in the hospital as I had at home, she said. Close the second part of the quote, I decided not to go to the hospital for the next one. And I'll just read one more thing um, from the book. Um, I promised the midwife that I met um, that I was not there to simply record stories for a university library um, collection. I was there to champion their voices so they could be more widely heard and appreciated for their contributions, and so that together we could champion the preservation of these birthing traditions. I'll I'll close there. Thank you so much for sharing that with the folks who are listening to WORT 89.9 FM. This is a public affair. My name is Ali Muldrow, and today we are interviewing Linda Holmes about her book, Safe in a Midwife's Hands. She just shared a little bit of, of the book with us. I really appreciated the the title safe in a midwife's hands. I think it speaks to kind of the the affection and care and intimacy of midwifery. Um, but I also really appreciated that you named safety um, right in the in the title. I think a lot of what people talk about when you talk about home birth, when you talk about midwifery um, is risk and fear. I think a lot of what we talk about when we talk about birth in general um, is risk and fear. Talk to me a little bit about the the safety that that folks experience in in working with midwives. 
So many of the practices that um, that midwives champion, such as keeping a mother active during labor, such as using alternative birthing experience, um, uh, positions, I'm sorry, um, as well as minimizing um, the use of, of drugs, right? As well as having um, people who you know and who care for you, such as family mm-hmm. members, friends, present in the birthing space, such as being in a space that you are familiar with, like home, right? So there are now countless studies that show that many practices that are at the core of midwifery practices, um, not to mention the use of herbal uh, medicines, uh, which there's quite a bit in the book about that as well, um, use of massage, right? Um, you know, stories about midwives who were adept at being able to turn uh, the the newborn the, the the infant in uterus to an appropriate position to avoid a cesarean section, right? Um, so there have been documented studies at this point, and I the purpose of my book is to talk about is to present the stories and their voices. But for anyone that's interested in, you know, it's not true unless it's it's in a medical journal <laughs> or it's in a nurse midwifery journal. Um, there are loads of scientific studies, you know, using the Western model that demonstrate how safe midwifery practices are. There was a study that was done by the CDC in North Carolina, I think it was in the 90s, where they compared the birthing outcomes of traditional black midwives with no formal um, education, learning their skills from their grandmothers, apprenticeships, having the spiritual call, living in the community, speaking the same language of the women that they're serving, right? They compare those um, outcomes, and these women had access to prenatal care through the health department, but comparing the access of midwives, uh, black women who had minimal uh, formal education with the outcome of uh, trained medical schools, you know, the whole nine yards, doctors, and they actually found that the black women's outcomes were, um, it wasn't statistically significant, but they were better than the outcomes of the doctors. So there are, there's lots of literature out there now. I appreciate that, that myth busting, because I think a lot of times we think, you know, who cares if you have to have a, a spotlight on your vagina and who cares, you know, what happens as long as you have the, the, the healthy baby at the end. And I think mm-hmm. what we are learning more and more is that those things do impact the the health of, of babies. And, you know, we spend more on birth in the United States than any other nation on earth. And we have some of the worst outcomes. We have a few seconds left. So in this last couple seconds, I want to encourage people to give. The number again is 608-256-2001. I also want to give a huge thank you to Linda Holmes for joining us today. The book is Safe in a Midwife's Hands, Birthing Traditions from Africa to the American South. Huge shout out to you, Shali, and congratulations on your nuptials. Thank you, Lily. Hey, we want to thank Daniel from Madison who uh, picked up a bucket hat and donated at the last second here we want to thank benjamin from madison and we want to thank michelle from belleville for donating during this hour we have two more uh, of you that we need to donate in the last 50 seconds uh 30 by the time you hear this 608-256-2001 thanks again rory and steve for answering phones in the lobby call rory and steve or uh donate online wortfm.org Thank you so much for joining us. Sorry, Ali, to steal your closing no. thunder. <laughs> no, huge thank you to everybody who gave. A huge thank you to Linda. Huge thank you to you, Shelly. Thanks, Ali. Coming up next is Letters in Politics. You're listening to WORT FM Madison. Power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from underground, another pirate station. We bring the truth to places truth is never heard before. We bring the sound communication of our tribal war. Dark vision fly by.